to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon, but today we're going to do something a little different than our usual song and dance. Because today we're going to chat with friend of the show on and off the court, one of the best and most creative NBA content creators out there, Alex Wong, who you might know on Twitter, at Stephen LeBron. The reason we had Alex on was to talk about his new book, Cover Story, the NBA and modern basketball as told through its most iconic magazine covers. The book is great, it's an easy read, and if you're a fan of Hoops history, collectibles, nostalgia, all that good stuff, this is definitely the book for you. And to make matters even better, I do not exaggerate when I say that Alex might also be the biggest Pound the Rock fan out there. Before we get to today's episode with Alex Wong, however, I do want to let you know about a really cool and really exciting narrative podcast coming to the score for any hockey fans out there or honestly any sports fans in general who grew up in the 90s, like 90s nostalgia or just like sports history in general. Today, we here at the score launched When Goalies Were Weird a six-part narrative podcast from The Score's awesome senior hockey writer, John Mattis. Each week, John takes a deep dive on one of the unforgettable 90s-era NHL goalies. We're talking names like Dominic Hasek, Patrick Waugh, Ed Belfort, and many, many more. It features countless interviews with former NHL stars, coaches, and GMs. You can check out the trailer now and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now let's get to our conversation with Alex Wong. Wolfon, I'll start by asking how are you, and then we'll get to the real reason we're here today, and it's talking to Alex. No one cares about us today. Yeah, I'm great. I mean, anytime I get to talk to Alex, is a good day, so feeling feeling good. Wow, the city love me like DeMar DeRosa, man. I'm feeling wow, speaking of DeMar. Right off the bat. Uh, yeah, speaking good. of DeMar, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Can't, can't wait for the DeMar DeRozan Kyle Lowry Eastern Conference Finals, boys. DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, you know, they were once on a slam cover together <laughs> with, a, with a bunch of other Toronto Raptors back in the day, which is a good segue to your book, which covers, as I mentioned, modern basketball history through... Uh, iconic magazine covers. Like, yes, I know that is part of the spine line, but it's also very much uh, a good descriptor for this book. And before we get into like some of the nitty gritty and maybe some questions Wolfon and I had about specific parts of the book, I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot, but how did you get here in terms of this book? Like, wh- where did the idea come from? What sparked it? And then what was the process like getting to the point now where we're here sitting and talking about it? Yeah, you know, first of all, it's an honor to be on my favorite NBA podcast, Pound the Rock. Everyone that's listening has already subscribed, but, you know, unsubscribe and resubscribe again. (laughs) This is why I come on for for just, you know, great questions and great banter. But yeah, you know, for for me, Cover Story actually started in 2016. I was working on a feature story for ESPN, The Undefeated. They had a section of features where writers would write about the backstories of iconic magazine covers and what i pitched at the time was the fifth year anniversary of linsanity was coming up and i pitched a story about doing the backstory of when jeremy lynn was on back-to-back sports illustrated covers which for anyone who ever read si or followed si like getting back-to-back covers is this like very prestige thing. Like unless you're Michael Jordan in the NBA finals getting like three covers in a row, this was something that just never happened. And then obviously being an Asian Canadian, seeing what Jeremy did really resonated with me personally. So I had a chance to sit down with Pablo Torre who wrote the cover story 
of that Jeremy Lin cover, talked to a lot of people in the Asian American community and talked to some SI editors about the decision behind putting Jeremy on two straight covers. And that became a feature. And that was one of the favorite stories that I worked on. So when it came time to talk to Triumph Books, my publisher in 2019, 2020 about potential book ideas, this was the one that I always had floating in my head a lot. How do I take magazine covers and this era of Sports Illustrated, of Slam, of ESPN, the magazine, and of the influence of hip hop on basketball through the source, Vibe, and many other magazines, how do I put that into a book format? And so we had several discussions back and forth. I started brainstorming covers that I wanted to work on. And it eventually just evolved into this idea of covering a period between 1984 and 2003. Even just reading through the book, it just like brought back so many memories for me, you know, like being young, being a teenager, even like something as simple as like, I don't know, you go to the store with like your parents or like you go, literally you go to the pharmacy, you know, and there's always like the magazine rack at the back. And the first thing I do is I want to see like, well, who's on Sports Illustrated this week? Like, what's the cover of Slam? Like all of that. So it was really cool to read this and have especially in the slam section so many of the covers i can remember and being like man now one of my friends is writing about that story like the the story behind that cover you know it's it's really cool but the one thing i wanted to ask you is and it doesn't even have to be one that's in the book maybe it is i don't know but from your memory or nostalgia do you have a definitive favorite basketball magazine cover of all time I think definitive is hard for me because I probably, if you were asked me this question, I'd probably give you a list of like top 10. Um, but to answer your question though, I think the one that always resonates with me and it ended up being in the book was when Slam put Rafer Alston on the cover because I remember so vividly subscribing to Slam growing up and, you know, thinking, you know, growing up, like I was one of those kids, like, you know, you buy those like basketball almanacs every year, you study all the box scores in the newspapers. Like I used to be a stats and schemes, schemes guy, just like Joe Wolfon. And, you know, one of the things, one of the things like I always prided myself on was I know everything about basketball. Like there's nobody that knows more than me. And I think a lot of kids growing up, if you're a fan, think that. But when that Slam magazine cover arrived and I saw Ray for Alston in a Fresno State jersey on the cover. And the tagline said, the best point guard in the world that you've never heard of. I legit had never heard of this guy. Like, I couldn't believe that Slam put someone on the cover that I had never actually heard of. Like, this, to me, really cemented Slam for me in terms of, oh, okay, like, I actually need to read this magazine, not because they have cool posters, not because they talk in this really cool voice that, you know, I wanted to emanate or, you know, this is what I thought like basketball was supposed to be about, but they were actually telling me about players that I had never heard of. And I think it goes back to what you said, Cash, about back in the day of going to the pharmacy or going to the local grocery store. When you actually saw people on the covers of an SI, of an ESPN magazine, of a slam, a lot of times that was really the first time you found out about an athlete, which I do miss that part of it if we're talking about the nostalgia. But to answer your question, I'd probably go with the Ray for Alston one. And then I'll always mention the Jeremy Lin ones because those ones just meant a lot to me personally. And I selfishly got Pablo to autograph the the Jeremy Lin cover for me when I interviewed him. So uh, Pablo, if you're listening to the best NBA podcast right now out, I'll be putting that on eBay soon. (laughs) You mentioned like sometimes first hearing about a guy. 
on the cover. It, and I don't know why this was a specific memory you triggered, but to give you an example of how much I, I remember that kind of stuff, I don't know how deep into your lives you guys continued to read Sports Illustrated, but I remember, you remember Terrence Williams who went to Louisville, ended up in the NBA. I think the Nets drafted him, didn't really have a long NBA career, but I remember reading like an SI profile of him when he was in college and was, you know, a more highly touted prospect. And I like vividly remember in this SI profile, them talking about Terrence Williams as this like futuristic thing called a point forward. The other thing I was thinking of is when I asked you if you have a definitive favorite and you said you have to give me like a top 10, it reminded me of asking Wolf on for a like a drop dead gun to your head answer on the pod and him coming up with reasons why there's multiple answers. I like that you and Wolf on are one and the same. Well, we know how Wolf on is. You know, he was on the Raptor show. Subscribe, rate and review available on all podcast platforms now. He was on the Raptor show on Saturday with me. And I was trying to do this rapid fire segment with him. I asked him a single question and he asked me five questions back. Like this is, I told Wolf on on air. I'm like, this is why I don't talk to you. Wolf the Riddler. I really have to hope that I don't, I don't ever wind up in a situation where there's an actual gun to my head asking me (laughs) to to provide an answer on the spot. Not to give you guys feedback because you guys are doing great, but I love when you guys read some of the reviews because I remember there was an episode when you guys read a review where I think someone was like, oh, yeah, no, Joe Cash is really good. But, you know, Wolfon needs to just drop a hot take once in a while. Like that that yeah, was my was, favorite. Yeah. It was five five stars, five stars for Cash and three for Wolfon measured out to a yeah. four star. I think Alex so. is currently confessing that it was his burner account. <laughs> no, I'm, I, this is, you know, because a lot of guests come on, come on podcasts. And I've done this too to other people where they're like, man, love your podcast. I listen all the time, but I just need to be dropping, sprinkling in specific examples from previous episodes. Just just to let you guys know that that I am the number one fan of Pound the Rock. Unsubscribe and subscribe. You don't have to tell us that because as I've said, I think on this show before, as I've said to people at the score, I, like as I've told everyone, Alex Wong literally promotes Pound the Rock more than Wolfon and I do. And Wolfon and I promote it, I think, like an adequate amount for, for the two co-hosts, but uh you cannot get an episode of Pound the Rock Up without Alex Wong sharing it on his IG story for all of his followers first. All right, back back to the topic at hand here. I know, I know Alex has a lunch date. I wanted to ask you, uh, is there a cover that you didn't get to write about or put in the book that you wish you had been able to write about or maybe you didn't even get to like research at all and you wish you would have got to know the backstory? Is there one that stands out like that? Yeah, so I did a chapter in the first part of the book about this 1995 Sports Illustrated cover with Dennis Rodman. So for, for people that might remember, it's it's known as a rare bird cover. It's the one where he's posing with a macaw parrot on his arm. He's wearing this leather outfit. This very out there photo for very like buttoned up magazine, Sports Illustrated at the time. There was another Rodman cover that I wanted to get to. And it was a Vibe magazine cover, I want to say from 1993 or 1994, where Dennis was posing on the front with Madonna. And this was actually on the set of the photo shoot where they met and started dating. And now the wildest part of the story is that cover never came out. Like there are images of it floating online, but it's an unreleased cover because at the time, somebody at Vibe, one of the execs, didn't want the image of a black man with a white woman on the cover of the magazine. And it got to a point where some of the editorial staff actually quit 
over that decision because not to get into a whole history of Vibe magazine because you know being honest this was more of a basketball book i know there's some hip-hop magazine stuff in there but i didn't dive that deep into the research there but vibe at the time had this perception of being a hip-hop magazine that was maybe sometimes catering to a white audience and this was a response to it so that was a magazine cover that i really wanted to dive into, but I sent a few emails to the people that are involved in Vibe, to the people that would have known the stories at the time. And a few of them are actually working on books themselves. Like this is like the problem that I would run into at times is that they wanted to keep some of those stories for themselves and, and couldn't share it to me. So the starting point for, for a Rodman chapter there, because I really wanted to highlight that specific period and Rodman's coverage on newsstands. So that is the one cover that I wish I dove into. And I'm really looking forward to all the people who worked at Vibe for when they eventually tell the full story. Yeah, that, that would be incredible. Do you guys remember uh, maybe like 10 to 15 years ago, I want to say, when LeBron and Giselle were on the cover of Vogue and, and Vogue actually got a lot of, of heat because the way they had it, it was like LeBron kind of holding Giselle and and dribbling doing this like primal scream into the camera and it it did look and and a lot of people pointed out that it almost looked like they were recreating the king kong scene where king kong's like on top of the empire state exactly. building and, and obviously vogue got a lot of flack for that for like the racial not even undertones like racial overtones of that cover for sure and i think i know we might dive into this but you know the chapter about alan iverson's soul and ice slam cover the one that everybody Everybody is familiar with, with the blown out Afro, the throwback Mitchell and Ness jersey, the classic ABA basketball. That chapter really was more a chapter about how black athletes have been depicted on the newsstand over the over the decades. And, you know, I think Allen Iverson was such a perfect example to use as kind of a discussion point on those topics because he was literally had his tattoos and jewelry airbrushed out of a Hoop magazine in 1999. And, and for those that don't know, Hoop magazine was a league-run publication. So this was an NBA decision to sanitize the image of Allen Iverson on the cover of a magazine. There's a, a funny anecdote towards the end of the Soul on Ice chapter where I think it was Tony Garvino from Slam mentions that at a lunch with someone from SI, they, their question about the cover was, how did how did you get Allen Iverson to wear a wig, or how did you convince AI to wear it? And like, just if you want an example of how out of touch, you know, and I loved SI going up, but how out of touch they were compared to a slam, and how much more plugged into the culture slam was. No, for sure, and I think the other part of it too is covered in that chapter. Uh, by the way, uh, no need to buy cover story. Uh, we're gonna break down uh, every chapter uh, on this podcast, so maybe just wait for it to hit the library, and uh, you know, just borrow it, support libraries, but. I think one of the things that was cool too, and I wanted to dive into in the book with a lot of people working at Slam was they were a majority white editorial staff as well, because you read Slam growing up, that's a hip hop voice, right? And like, let's be honest, like you would just assume that the entire staff were just black people speaking, you know, kind of the urban language. And that was something that they had to contend with as well. And that's why I wanted to get the founder of the magazine, Dennis Page, um, who's this white Jewish guy just speaking on record about how he felt because he admitted that he got a lot of criticism sometimes from other places saying that he was appropriating the culture. And, you know, even Corey Johnson, who was the editor in chief of the very first magazine remembers when he put together the different sections in the magazine and they would use like slang and like just street terms that there were a lot of people in the editorial room who were uncomfortable with that, but ultimately they landed on 
this is the language that we grew up speaking. We're in this hip hop culture. We're very immersed in it. What we want to do is portray the game of basketball in an authentic way. And, you know, I think I get the concerns, but ultimately I think, I think slam depicted basketball in an era very, very perfectly is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, you even like you wrote in pretty extensive detail about how the source was founded and it was founded by two like upper middle class Jewish kids at Harvard, you know? So I think obviously it became like seminal and important publication, but I think that's a good, you know, between that and slam and like these magazines that became kind of like the voice um, of, you know, hip hop of basketball and like a different generation and a different readership, it still highlights the kind of schism um, in media, you know, and how like even when the subject matter is one that is considered by, you know, stodgier publications like Sports Illustrated to be too risque or too like alienating to their older white base, like it still was primarily white people who were like having the opportunities to make those publications happen. And I think I mean, hopefully we're starting to see that change a little bit, but that's definitely still an issue, you know, in terms of the way that these subjects are covered and and the opportunities and the people that are granted those opportunities. So I thought that was um, an important thing to point out, you know, and um, it was even like I people have talked about like Michael Jordan's politics, obviously, and how apolitical he was. And like, I had never heard anything like the story of him basically telling Phil Taylor, like he, he had this vendetta against Sports Illustrated, didn't want to talk to them, but he made a point of telling Phil Taylor, like this young black journalist who went to try and get an interview with him, you know, tell your magazine to hire more black writers, basically. So um, I think as a through line, uh, you know, throughout the book, that was really well done. Yeah, no, I think, and to be honest, those themes were not, they were not things that I went into writing this book, like purposely wanting to tackle and, and not to say that I was ignorant of them. But I think I went into this project thinking this would be really more of a fun and like Cash described a nostalgic trip down memory lane and just finding these fun stories of Sports Illustrated writer Michael Silver going on this four day three state trip with Dennis Rodman and just cool backstories from writers, from photographers. But more and more as I was having these conversations, and like you mentioned, you know, Michael Jordan, I think a lot of people know after the Baggett Michael cover when he was playing baseball, vowed to never talk to SI again, and he never did. And, you know, I did kind of get a greater appreciation of what it meant to be on a magazine cover and why the magazine cover was so important. And I think it ties to the fact that, hey, if there are all these white editorial staff as the decision makers, they are in the same way also a gatekeeper, right? And when we're talking about Allen Iverson, the NBA's official publication, Hoop Magazine, decided to be a gatekeeper. They decided that they didn't want Allen Iverson to be portrayed as he was. They didn't think that the audience wanted that. And I think that's super interesting, too, because for all of us who grew up in the 90s, when you talk about the source and when you talk about Slam... Every kid growing up, I think, partly was immersed in hip-hop culture. So it was interesting to me for the NBA to say towards the late 90s that, hey, we actually don't want to be associated with this thing that gave birth to stars like a Shaquille O'Neal, who is arguably, who was arguably at one point, 
one of the most famous athletes in the world. Now, Allen Iverson comes along. He's not doing ads for Pepsi. He's not making these very commercially friendly, you know, movies and, you know, appearances and things like that. And suddenly the NBA decides the thing that's making us a lot of money, we're going to say no to. And, you know, so I think those themes I really stumbled upon. And, and you know, to further that, in, in part three of the book, one of the things I, I really wanted to dive into while writing this was addressing the fact of the inequality between genders as well of women's athletes and, and how they're covered. And those are some of the best conversations that I had with editors who wrote and, you know, ran Sports Illustrated for Women. Um, I had a chance to talk to Lindsay Colas, who's a manager for Diana Taurasi and a lot of other WNBA players. And it was just, you know, it was very eye-opening to me, just just learning about those things and really understanding the importance of the magazine cover. Even when you were talking about AI, like the, the NBA li- like literally and figuratively airbrushed AI's authenticity. And then they made the biggest excuse. Their excuse was, oh, we thought he had a bite on his neck. And that's what, like, they just, they were caught, right? Like, yeah. they were caught, and they had no excuses about it. And, like, it was, to me, when I look back, like, the just the general coverage, because I obviously did a lot of research, too, reading back to the, just the media coverage of Allen Iverson during his rookie year, every other article in Philadelphia was about the friends that he hung out with. And local newspaper reporters would dig up their criminal records. Like, if they were arrested for, like, shoplifting, when they were 16, they would be portrayed as a criminal. Like the, the general coverage towards AI was just very racist. Yeah, because he refused to conform. He refused to airbrush himself the way the NBA did. The NBA was profiting off of the culture in a lot of ways, but didn't want the most authentic forms of something like hip hop culture, which in a lot of ways AI represented on the screen, right? They just wanted the airbrushed version of that. And so I think, you know, not to give away everything in the book, but I, I think for sure if people read the book and read the the section on slam, especially and the AI stuff, they will definitely come away with that and, and some of the behind the scenes stuff there. And for me, as someone that grew up a huge AI fan, more so because of the kind of like counterculture he represented than, than almost anything he did on the court. Although I obviously admired the toughness in which he played at his size on the court but yeah for me that like those sections the scoop in ai chapter the soul on ice chapter for me like brought back the most nostalgia and had me like really glued to the page because they just resonated with me as a fan from back then so much and and i even love for example talking about authenticity and stuff like one of the anecdotes scoop jackson had in the book about a meeting he had with espn the magazine at one point um where you know, he he had an idea to write the story of why Latrell Sprewell was correct, like why he was right for choking PJ Carlissimo and ESPN the Mag. Obviously, he was like, no, you can't do that. And Scoop's perspective, which, I, again, I admire so much, is like, well, I think it was Source Sports maybe at the time. I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it was like, well, so I, he had already written. He right, had already written that right. article for Source Sports, which was a sports spinoff magazine that the sport uh, the Source had started, which was actually really successful. And yeah, that that was that was one of my favorite anecdotes. Just hearing from Scoop because again, if you talk about sanitizing, if you if you talk about gatekeeping and what's being presented, ESPN the magazine, obviously you know owned by Disney. And, you know, they have their own corporate sponsors to answer to. They're definitely not going to let a feature writer write an article about why, uh, you know, a black athlete was right to choke a white coach. Right. But in, and although I see Scoop's point. 
Yeah, and and Scoop's comeback was the greatest thing ever. It was literally like, well, then I'm not. Why would I join your team if you're not going to give me the free? Because guess what? I've written that before. Someone gave me the freedom to write that. So why am I going to come to your team and 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 lose that freedom? Yeah, and it's funny because like I didn't include this in the book, uh, just because of you know page count, word count, and all that stuff. But like the rest of that conversation with Scoop was interesting because ESPN kept pursuing him. That was in 1998, 99, I want to say, and. ESPN just pursued him for like another decade and it didn't take until I believe 2006 until Scoop actually felt comfortable making the jump to ESPN the magazine. And as I'm talking to you guys, I'm realizing, man, if you if you're a media member or aspiring media member, pick pick this book up. I think this book is actually a uh, cater to all my media friends because there's a lot of just inside stuff in there. This is going to be part of the uh, the syllabus in a future yeah. <laughs> So, so, sorry, sorry to try in books, man. I meant to cater to a bigger audience, but I guess I just wrote this for my media friends. I got you on the next one, though. Well, I also think for us media people reading it, there's a sense of, you know, I, I wouldn't call it nostalgia because, you know, we weren't media members back when a lot of this stuff was happening and these magazines were being created. But just maybe a feeling of loss a little bit at like the era of journalism that is bygone, that you know, access has completely changed. Obviously, I don't think it's a bad thing that players have developed platforms to tell their own stories and essentially cut out the middleman. But Sometimes it's bad, but yeah. <laughs> well, I just think, you know, that has its place for sure, but also it's good to have a different perspective. And, yeah. you know, these these players can tell their own stories, but I think ultimately, speaking not even as a, as a media member, but just as a reader, I think you want a player's perspective on their own story. And I think you also want an external perspective. And I think, you know, we can all agree that, that a little something has been lost, that access clearly isn't what it used to be. And, you know, not only that, but I'm glad actually you mentioned the Rafer Alston cover, Alex, because I feel like there's maybe also this nostalgia for an era where there was the thrill of discovery which we don't really have anymore, you know, in the era of YouTube and Twitter and 24 hour news cycles where it's like, what exactly is getting discovered now in a magazine or even if it's an online article, it's like the, the news cycle almost moves too fast for something like that to come and like grab the public imagination in the way that say, you know, New York street ball, um, became this kind of intense cultural focus um, because of the reporting that was done by journalists, by magazine writers. You know, I think that's, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you have some perspective on that. Like what, what in this day and age do you feel like can even really replace that? You know, yeah. what is, what is the next frontier of, of sports journalism really look like? Yeah. It's interesting. You asked that because, you know, Adam Figman, who currently is the editor-in-chief of Slam Magazine, he read Cover Story. And, you know, obviously this book covers an era that was before him. But in the epilogue, I do catch up to present day and talk about where the magazines have gone. Most of them, obviously, you know, this is not even a spoiler. Like most of them have disappeared or have changed into digital formats. And Adam took issue with some of the things that I said in the book towards the end about magazines being this dying breed right and we had a really constructive conversation about it which actually he's going to publish in next month's issue of slam so 
pick up an issue of Slam, save magazines. Um, but in talking to him, this is the exact conversation that we had. Like, what is the place for magazines now? What is the value or currency of a magazine cover? And I think for Adam, he comes from a, from a different place because I would argue that Slam still holds the same prestige and the same currency to players. Now, does it still resonate with the fans? Are we still, like you mentioned, going to newsstands and finding out about it? Like for me, the one thing I pointed out in the book is nowadays when a new magazine cover comes out, it's being promoted on social media, right? Like you'll see the Instagram post first. So it does strip away the discovery. But the thing that I did land on agreeing with him on is that because it is such a diluted market of just content nowadays, right? Of YouTube, of social media, of TikTok, there is still value, I think, of being on a magazine cover. Like it still matters, I believe, when you land as a magazine cover star. But I think the disconnect for me is like whether it does still resonate with such a huge audience. And, you know, I have to say no on that. Even just like, Going back to SI, early in the book, you talk about there was a time when if you wanted to know what was going on in sports or you were just like excited to know what was going on, you went to Sports Illustrated. Who's the cover person this week? Who's the cover team this week? What are the stories? And as I was reading that, I even started thinking like, man, I wonder, because I remember doing that as a kid. I wonder now what the new generation of childhood teenage sports fans that were like as obsessed as we were, like what are their- NFTs. Maybe, <laughs> but for no, real, like, I don't know, maybe, right. maybe you could be right. right. Like I, I, I don't want to presume that like that's insane because I don't, I don't know. Maybe the same way that I don't know, maybe twenty years ago, the generation before me, maybe thought it was silly that I cared that much about like who was on the slam cover or what the SI cover was for that week. But it, it did make me wonder, like, not to sound like an old guy now, but like, what are the kids doing? But like, for real, like, what are kids that are huge sports fans right now, um, from like a content consumption perspective? from a like visual medium perspective like what are they looking forward to what are they excited about what makes them think like oh holy crap this player or these players or my team got on the cover of like i I really do wonder what their version for this generation is do they even have one maybe not yeah you know you know i know i know you know wolfon's nft point is actually really poignant because for me the larger conversation is just about the deterioration of like just physical goods like physical magazines physical books you've seen a lot of people move towards ebooks right uh, and things like that uh cover story available on ebooks as well um and cds too right i grew up collecting cds and now i just have a spotify playlist like things have just deteriorated so it, it is a hard thing to i think fathom for people like us who have seen the transition from from one era to another but you know, I, I still think like I think about when, you know, you, you mentioned up top, like when Drake, Damar and Kyle were on the cover of Slam or right before the pandemic during the 2019-20 season after Kawhi Leonard left the Raptors when the rest of the team was featured on the cover of Slam. Like those moments still resonated with the fan base in the same way that when you put a Clippers player on a cover of Slam. I think it resonates with that fan base. So I think the resonance is All still six of them. there. Yeah, the resonance is still there. But I mean, it's definitely not the same impact as before. Like, are we ever going to get another Allen Iverson soul on ice moment? Like, I don't think we're ever getting that again. No, 
I, I don't. And maybe that's just me being biased for like t- towards my generation and like the golden era of, of basketball covers. But I really don't because, and I think especially with that soul on ice cover, man, and, and you did a good job in the book of really capturing the the meaning and the importance of that cover and the authenticity of it and the cultural significance of it too. So I, I really don't think in this modern era, given all that we're talking about right now with like the value loss of physical goods, especially and from a media standpoint, I, I don't see how we can get a cover or any, or, or whatever it is, a social media graphic, whatever it is, that's, that's going to touch that kind of like significance the way AI's Soul on Ice cover did. Because if you were a ball fan, if you were an AI fan, if you, if you had any knowledge of like ball at the time and the lack of authenticity that the NBA want, like was allowing Iverson to have, especially, and you saw that covered, like you were just blown away. I also think early on in the book, there's, um, I can't remember who it was, who it was like the one, one of the editors of Sports Illustrated was talking about the idea of these covers amounting to something greater. And I think it's it was kind of like a neat thesis for the entire book. I think you said those weeks add up to eras or something like that, where you take, you know, one Sports Illustrated cover after another, and you start to see this era kind of take shape in front of you. And I feel like you know, looking at your idea essentially to, to to look at the history of the NBA via magazine covers fits really nicely into that, right? And I think what I guess I'm wondering about now is, you know, what does this era look like? You know, what is the cultural artifact or artifacts that define the era of the NBA, the era of sports, the era of media that we're currently living through? Like, how do we document that? And what does that look like when we're looking back 20 years from now? I think one medium that has survived from a sports media perspective because of social media is actually like good sports photography. And I think like a perfect example of that is even the other night, you know, when Steph hits that shot um, that that he turned and like talked to a, a Warriors fan while I was going in, he's like pointing and I was talking about how cold and iconic that photo is instantly. I still think that has its place, you know, like mm-hmm. 20 years from now, whatever the hell social media looks like then or whatever the thing that replaces social media is. I think something like that will still have value and resonance and will still carry a certain weight of nostalgia. So if there is one kind of, I guess, quote unquote, old medium that seems to be surviving and will still be able to tell those stories and add up to almost like an era defining flip book if you will, in our minds or on social media, whatever it is, I I think sports photography can still do it. And I I think that's one thing where social media has actually maybe helped keep a medium booming. That's actually a great answer because I I, I was honestly struggling to to think of a specific example, but the photography is a great point. And I just want to like shout out some of these iconic NBA photographers who have been doing it since the 1980s, like a Nathaniel Butler or Andy Bernstein, who I interviewed for the book name drops and uh you know even jonathan mannion who's a hip-hop photographer who shot the uh famous showbiz and kg steph marbury kevin garnett slam cover he shot like jay-z's reasonable doubt album and went on to shoot basically all of his album covers and dmx's covers like and he's continued to do that right like capturing both basketball players and hip-hop stars in that way but the nba photography is interesting to me too because I feel like we take all those iconic photos and we turn them into memes. And and I'm also like, you know, part of the problem with that. But like, <laughs> I feel like back in the day, it's like when those photos, when you see a photo of like Michael Jordan taking off from the free throw line, 
Like nobody is like turning that into a meme of like, oh, this is me. These are my bills. These are the groceries after. You know what I mean? Like the basketball is the groceries. The, the net is my responsibilities. You know, like, but that's what instantly everybody comes to now is like, how do we turn that into just very disposable and digestible content? So in like a weird way, even the like most iconic like like sports photography kind of gets lost in the mix. But I'm with you, Cash. I do feel like when people do look back, like back to Wolfon's question in like 10 years, 20 years, I, I do think like the iconic photography is what's going to resonate. But also, I mean, to your point, like the memification of culture is also going to be something that really defines this era of consumption, right? Like, we're like talking Michael, about Michael Jordan. We talk about Mike. Yeah, exactly. We talk about Michael Jordan. This guy is a crying meme. Yeah. When you think of Michael Jordan, you think of that. You think of I took it personally from the last dance. You think of him walking in with that evil grin holding like a bottle of Hennessy. You like, think these of are a meme people memes. created that went viral with fuck them kids. Yeah, exactly. He never actually said. No, e- exactly. But like that is such a great point by Wolfon because we just listed off like the four most memorable things about MJ from this era and they're all memes. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Not on the Soul and Ice chapter, but in the Scoop and AI chapter, when Scoop's talking about like how bad he wanted to put AI on the cover, when he kind of first not discovered him, but for, in his perspective, first discovered him at Georgetown. First of all, there's also a line in there about how at the time, like Scoop went there thinking AI was just like a defensive player because he had won like defensive player of the year in high school. And he was like, I don't believe all the hype about his offense. Like he's going to, it's just, it's funny in hindsight to hear someone think about AI back then. It's like, man, he's probably just a good defensive player. Yeah. Just to sob you there too, before you ask the question, yeah. if I can make a point on that. So what got left out of the book when Scoop said that he thought he was a defensive player, he went into, he went into this like 10 minute segue explaining to me, he's like, it was basically like, if I, if you went to watch Patrick Beverly today. He's like, if I told you to go watch Patrick Beverly in a summer league gym, he's like, did you that's think hilarious. Patrick Beverly could drop 50 points? That's what he told me. Well, that's why you read cover story, folks, for little uh, stories like that, even though it didn't make the book. That's why you listen to Pound the Rock to hear yeah. what didn't make the book. Well, now I really want to see footage of AI playing like Patrick Beverly, like before he exploded into a superstar scorer, you know, just just playing grimy defense, pestering people for 90 feet. Just running around and tricking y'all. Um, <laughs> The Scoop and AI section when, when Scoop's talking about at that time wanting to put AI on the cover. And I think it was Dennis Page, who's publisher and co-founder, uh, I think, of Slam. Trying to tell him, like, no. Like, he's a college player at the time. Like, he's not going to sell. No one knows who he is. And he ended up putting him on the cover to appease Scoop, but also to prove a point. And and at the end, towards the end of the chapter, it's kind of like, okay, they were both right. Because Scoop was right in that Allen Iverson kid was going to be the next big thing. And Dennis Page was right in that it was like one of the worst selling slams of all time. Like no one cared. And for us in the media, I'm sure we've all experienced it too, where it's like you as a writer, you're so convinced like, like this not is the just, best idea. Like, yes, this it's is, not this idea just, is going to hit. This exactly. is Joe Wolf on saying, you know, I'm going to do a 50,000 word feature about TJ McConnell. <laughs> 
and Cash being like, hey man, I don't think it's the best idea. Finding that balance is so tough between creating good content, regardless of wanting clicks or eyeballs or whatever, but also wanting to create good content that people actually care about. Because if people don't care about it and no one's reading it, it's like, what are you doing it for? So that, that, the end of that chapter, like, just as someone in the media really resonated with me because that's a struggle we all go through. And whether you're a writer, an editor, someone lower on the totem pole, someone at the top of a publishing company, like everyone in the industry knows that struggle, that dance. Yeah. And you know, that that was the main reason why I wanted to put that chapter in there is, you know, aside from like all the fun stories you want to hear about, I wanted to remind people that these magazines were running a business, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like Slam was running a business and as big as Slam was culturally, they weren't moving like, you know, a fraction of what Sports Illustrated was doing. Sports Illustrated had millions of subscribers, which to the point of, you know, I think I pointed this out in the book, it didn't matter who Sports Illustrated put on the cover from a financial standpoint, because you already had millions of subscribers who were getting that magazine. Slam was like life or death. Like they were issue to issue at the very beginning. And for context, like when you talk about this Alan Iverson cover that Scoop was pushing for, this was like their ninth issue, I believe. And you know, Iverson was still at Georgetown and Dennis Page was like, man, if we don't sell copies for a month, like they're going to shut us down. Like the publisher is going to shut us down. And the best quote Dennis told Scoop when they were yelling at each other was, yo, you know, this writing shit. And like, I know this publishing shit. But like you said, Dennis was like, all right, man, like I respect Scoop. I brought him in. He's such a preeminent voice at the magazine. I'm going to just let him brick this cover. And and just to prove a point. And like he he was so certain it was going to brick, he put Ed O'Bannon, who was the National Player of the Year at UCLA at the time, on the West Coast. So there was a split cover. AI was on the East Coast. Ed O'Bannon was on the West Coast. But it didn't matter. It was still the worst selling. And I think it's interesting, too, because when you jump in sequence later on in the book to the Ray for Alston chapter, which we talked about, Dennis, again, was a little bit hesitant about it because... If we put this guy that nobody knows and it bricks, like this was still pretty early on in the magazine. Like it could be a problem. But Tony Giovino was able to convince him by saying, you know what? We're going to say he's the best point guard in the world. And if we do that on the cover, then it's going to get everyone's attention. And my favorite thing about talking to all these slam guys, because growing up for me, I'm like, man, these taglines were like Bible to me, right? Like if you call him the best point guard... I'm calling him the best point right. guard. It's it's like how kids look at Alex Wong's uh, Twitter nowadays. If if Alex tweets it, if he if he memes it, if he captions it, that's that's, right. that's their gospel. Yeah, my, my mom my mom's like, why don't you go to church? I'm like, yo, man, check my Twitter, man. That's my gospel. <laughs> I forgot my point. Yeah, the Ray for Alston. The best thing about the Slam guys when I ask them about all these taglines, they're like, yeah, man, we like didn't even think twice about it. Like, if we're gonna say the New Jersey Nets are gonna win the championship in five years. We, we don't even believe it, but like, we're going to do it. We're going to put Grant Hill on the cover and say, like Mike, but better. And like, we don't believe that, but hey, it's going to move units. And I think it was important to point out just honestly, the business aspect of the magazine cover. Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of thing is what we would in today's era call clickbait, right? Which is exactly. obviously, you know, exactly. it's, it's, it's got a real pejorative connotation now, but at the end of the day, it's trying to accomplish the same thing. Like you want people to click on your article, you need a headline that is going to grab attention. And oftentimes that means being controversial or just flat out wrong. But that's, you know, when you're trying to marry, you know, this idea of journalistic integrity with the need 
to today, you know, drive traffic. Uh, a couple decades ago, move magazines off of newsstands. It's like you need to you need to find a way to balance those two things. And I think, yeah, what what has now become uh, you know headline clickbait was back then like the cover lines, and uh, and and I I enjoyed that aspect of the book and and seeing kind of how business interest played into those cover lines and the necessity of making them uh, really toe that line between. Um, engaging and fanciful. It also like depends on the, the the type of story or what you're writing and the point of it. You know, like okay, if you're writing like a serious profile or you're writing about like a more serious matter, clickbait has no purpose there. And and mm-hmm. if anything, yeah, it is cringy and it like devalues more important work or a more serious piece. But if you're writing a more just like strictly basketball kind of piece and you're talking about like on court stuff and and on court value, and I think it's okay to call. Uh, Grant Hill like Mike, but better, even if you don't necessarily believe like I, I think in that in those cases, it's fine. And like, it's okay to be wrong when we're talking about from like just a basketball perspective. You know what I mean? As long as you're not like, I don't know, saying something out of pocket about a player like off the court or something more about like their personal life, if you're just talking ball, it's okay to say something that ends up being wrong. And I think yeah, as we're mentioning some of these like slam titles and, and the, the taglines and stuff, they pushed the envelope in that way, but they were also fearless because they understood like we're not saving lives here. You know, like it's okay if five years from now someone comes back and says like you guys on your cover said Grant Hill is going to be like. If anything, if anything, slam would be the first ones to to riff on themselves right. about it and then make fun of themselves and just point out those discrepancies and and I think it goes back to another theme in the book that I really hope does resonate when people read it is making them appreciate just the different aspects of a magazine cover so when we're talking about cover lines cover image you know the cover athlete and even the cover story you know the cover story isn't on the main page but that's what people are reading inside the magazine right like when we're talking about taglines I mean we go back to the Michael Jordan I mean if Sports Illustrated didn't write the words bag it Michael and then with the subtitle of Michael Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing the sport of baseball, this whole Michael Jordan Sports Illustrated thing probably would have never happened. Because as embarrassing as the cover photo was of him at spring training whiffing on a pitch, it's those words that I ultimately believe hurt Michael to the core Mm -hmm. of them just kind of attacking him personally. And you talk about cover athletes. We talked about Allen Iverson before. We talked about this whole thing about Scoop and Dennis Page fighting over putting AI on the cover early on. It's funny because if you jump to the end of the book, when we talk about LeBron James being on the cover of SI as the chosen one, about six months before that, Slam actually went out to Akronos, the first national magazine to write a profile on LeBron. And they did a whole photo shoot with Atiba Jefferson, who's a really talented photographer. But again, it went back to Dennis. Dennis said, even though the magazine's blowing up now, we're pretty entrenched on the newsstands. People are really fucking with us. He's like, I can't put a high school sophomore, a high school junior on the cover. It's not going to sell. And to this day, like through all the conversations I had with Dennis during the course of this book, I'd never heard him so sad than when I brought that up. Because he literally, he said this, and I believe I, I left this in the book. He called it the biggest regret. The only regret, the only regret that he has uh, regarding slam covers is not being the first to put LeBron on the cover. Now, the thing I push back with him too, and I think this is another theme in the book is these magazine covers take a different resonance at the time and when it ages. So at the time, I think he made the right decision. I mean, if it was Felipe Lopez who ended up on a cover of SI, 
or Sebastian Telfair, who ended up on covers of SI and Slam. Nobody's regretting those, but you regret LeBron because of what he's become, right? So it's a lot of hindsight too for me. 100%. I mean, that also goes back to, you know, this idea of these covers reflecting eras and just like being reflective of their time, right? And I think, you know, probably like some of the most memorable covers are the ones that, that turned out to be so egregious, right? Like, and you can look at that as as a cultural artifact uh, or, or as a piece of NBA lore and be like, oh, wow, there was a time when some people were comparing Grant Hill to Michael Jordan or thinking yep. that he might have yep. been even better. You know, there was a time when Sebastian Telfair was going to take the NBA by storm. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And in some cases, maybe even more value in that than just a cover that has Michael Jordan on it being like, OK, obviously, we all know that this era um, both on the court and in the media, was dominated by this larger-than-life figure. But I think the the far more interesting stories are the ones that didn't pan out the way that people expected them to. And these snapshots in time of those moments when anything seemed possible, uh, I think, sort of just grow in the imagination over the years. Alex made the point, too, about gaining not even just an understanding, but like an appreciation for how many people go into making a magazine and like how many things have to go right and, and, and all the people doing work. Even just like the things that have to go right. Like I loved reading about the, the iconic 96 draft photo shoot, or not the draft, but like the rookie photo shoot at the transition program. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. But my favorite part of it is they essentially like had what a minute, a minute and a half to pull it off. And at the time, slam wasn't even like a really well-known thing. And it's like, okay, clearly it ended up working out because that's now one of the most iconic basketball covers ever with a bunch of the 96 rookies. It's a reminder of just like how always on a knife's edge things in media are like it is crazy because as like we know it all well from like stories we've written and stories we haven't been able to write or whatever the case may be we're like the the fine line between if this goes right i I believe in this story so and this is going to be like one of the best stories i could tell whatever and i'm actually getting nothing and like no one's ever going to hear that like or it just not being a good story like that fine line to razor's edge. And I think that 96 rookies cover on slam is a perfect example of that. When you read the chapter and realize how thin that line is and you know, they pulled it off, but they very easily could have not. I think that's a great example. And, and, you know, uh, appreciate the razor's edge reference. Was that a shout out to my favorite wrestler, razor Ramon? Um, you know, I think when we talk about the SI chosen one, LeBron cover as well, and again, I don't think this made it into the book. I guess I'm going to have to release a 400-page paperback version now that I realize these cut stories are actually amazing. Is that when SI was debating whether to put LeBron on the cover themselves after they did the photo shoot for the chosen one, it was down to them and like this ski- snowboarding team at the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics in 2002 because they had won, I believe, like four medals. Like They were the dominant story that week. And it had been down to whether we're going to put this high schooler as the cover story or the skateboarding team as the cover story. And again, you talk about kind of a moment in time and like a razor's edge and like how random these things are. Very easily, someone in that editorial room at SI could have just said, you know what, let's go with the skateboarding story. We're still going to run. We're still going to run this, you know, four page feature on this high school kid and we'll get to him later. And if that happens, we never have that chosen one cover that gets brought up all the time that LeBron James has a chosen one tattoo on his back. 
And then it's just kind of this butterfly effect thing. Then Dennis Page doesn't have to regret the fact that Slam wasn't the first one. Because six months after that, LeBron James and Sebastian Telfair appeared on the cover of Slam together. So it is really funny to me when you look back and see how these things could have just like turned uh, on the on the littlest thing. Yeah, like, you know, the Slam's clutch editorial decision to exclude Todd Fuller from that photo shoot. <laughs> just like gently whisk him away and be like, no, nah, there's nothing going on over there. I, I really love that yeah. anecdote. Oh, poor Todd Fuller. The story was, and I can tell this, uh, you know, read about the rest of it. Go to your local library, see if you can borrow cover story. The story is, this is the 96 draft. And I think people remember the fold-out cover with all the guys standing except for Allen Iverson. So they were organizing this photo shoot on Rookie Orientation Day where these guys go to orientation and then they shoot photographs for all these trading card companies. And like you mentioned at the time, like David Stern was not fucking with Slam. David David Stern was like, man, this this magazine makes fun of the league. They're going at older players. Um, I think Tony Gervino, the quote was like, David Stern would always joke to me that he'd have Slam just, uh, you know, delivered to him in a brown paper bag because he was like so embarrassed to be seen with it. So they couldn't organize a photo shoot through the NBA, but there were people at the NBA who loved Slam and they said, listen, man, if you come down here, we're going to give you 60 seconds. Tell us the players that you want. We're going to do it. Allen Iverson that day in the morning decides to leave rookie orientation early. So he's out of the shoot. And then now Tony is like scrambling during a lunch break when they're going in between photo shoots. He's grabbing everyone to stand in front of this brick wall. And then Todd Fuller, this white center. And I only mention his race because Tony Gervino had a rule. Uh, he, his rule, one of his unofficial rules of Slam Magazine was no white athletes on white backdrops. Uh, that was like a rule that he had, but like it was a brick wall. But he was like, he had the guys handpicked. Like it was going to be Ray Allen, it was going to be Sharif Durahim, it was going to be Kobe Bryant, all of these guys. Todd Fuller comes in and he's like, Oh, are you guys doing a photo shoot? And Tony's like, Nope, like we're just not. And then eventually, I think they just had a couple minutes of small talk and stare down. And then Todd Fuller got the point. Uh, I do wonder what it would look like though. I almost feel like if Todd Fuller was in it, it wouldn't have really ruined it. I mean, it would have been a little less iconic, I guess. But yeah, I also wondered like, what Todd Fuller up to today. And is he a Pound the Rock listener just listening to this story right now? Thinking, oh, Tony Gervino, you son of a... <laughs> this is Todd Fuller's uh, Joker origin story, man. You could have all those years later been like, oh, I was drafted, but I was in this iconic NBA slam photo shoot. And now he doesn't even have that poor guy. Right. And yeah, wait, waiting for the uh, the review to drop on our iTunes page tomorrow. Five stars for Cash and Wolf on one star for Alex Wong. <laughs> oh, man. Just just as long as you don't put the one star on my Amazon reviews, man. It's all good, Todd. Go hit up the Pound the Rock page. Yeah, it's, it's just funny because like one of the tidbits, too, is that that cover is now framed at the NBA office at Secaucus, wow. New Jersey. So it's like they didn't mess with Slam early, but like that again goes to show like over time, like slam was just such a powerful entity that the league had no choice but but to acknowledge it and embrace it i know we're uh, running up against it here time wise so I won't, we won't keep you too much longer um not sure if wolfon has any more specific questions for you or anything the, the one thing i wanted to know is and it again it doesn't even have to be something that like made it into the book uh but in the process of you gathering information for this researching doing the interviews i can only imagine like how many cool stories you heard, how many nostalgic things you heard, and how many times like you were sitting there because at the end of the day, like the two of us and like everyone listening, you're, you're a basketball fan, you know, first and foremost, before you were ever a media member, you're a sports fan. So 
I want to know, is there one story or something that stands out now where you can think back to putting the book together where it was like the coolest for you as a fan, like the coolest story you heard of, maybe even just the coolest moment while you were on the phone with someone where you're hearing it and you're thinking like 16 year old me would have been pinching myself that I'm getting to hear this behind the scenes story. Like, was there one moment like that you can pinpoint and make in the book? I think I've asked myself this, what my favorite chapter of the book is or favorite story that I've worked on. And I think I would say it is the Dennis Rodman rare bird cover. And one of the, my favorite interviews was with John McDonough, who was the photographer who took that photo of Rodman. And, you know, the photo shoot happened in Rodman's house in San Antonio. And, and John McDonough had known Rodman before. And, you know, just hearing him tell the backstory, because I grew up obviously familiar with Rodman, familiar with that cover of him sitting with the parrot on this chair, which was in his bathroom. And he's got this leather outfit. The first thing when Rodman, when John McDonough, the photographer, shows up at Rodman's house that day, and mind you, it was a Sunday morning, and they had to get these photos done. And at the time, you couldn't send them digitally. You had to ship them same day, like on a plane back to New York. It had to be ready for a Sunday deadline. First thing Dennis says when John McDonough rocks in was like, hey, man, can I pose naked on the cover of SI? Because Dennis was just pushing the boundaries. And John's just like, no, like you can't. So Dennis goes up and changes into this leather outfit. And John's just laughing at this point. And it's just hearing him recount it. He's like, whatever, man. Like, we're just going to get this shoot done. So they shoot what ends up being the cover photo. But then they shoot a couple of other spots. And Dennis goes back upstairs and changes again. He comes back in this whole outfit. And the way John describes it is he's wearing pants where his crotch is exposed. Like, there's a hole where his privates are. And John is like, this guy is just challenging me. So he positions Dennis Rodman on a couch, on a leather couch. I think it's leopard print. If you if you have that issue of Sports Illustrated, or you can go on SI Vault online, if you flip through the inside photos, there is one photo of Rodman just laying out on this leather couch, and he's wearing this these pants where his crotch is exposed. But John was able to find the exact right angle where the sunlight and the shadows blocked the part where his pants was exposed. And he took it as a personal challenge, and he was able to pull it off. Um, so that, that is probably my favorite story. And if I can tell one more, um, you know, slam related, uh, so this running joke and it comes up through the magazine, uh, in the book cover story a few times is that slam had this rivalry with Reggie Miller because they were a New York based publication. Tony Gervino was an outright New York Knicks fan. Russ Bankson was just a basketball fan, but like it was more Tony Gervino cause he ran the magazine at the time. He hated Reggie. He hated Reggie. He would make fun of Reggie all the time. If anybody owns the very first issue of Slam Magazine, if you flip to this page, there's a page where they ask athletes what they were listening to on their Walkman, uh, not to date all of ourselves. But Reggie, there's a quote in there from Reggie saying, I don't know what Slam is and I'm not answering the question. So that's the origin story of the rivalry. Reggie, obviously, the what is it? Eight points, nine seconds, just like absolutely annihilated the Knicks, terrorized them. So Gervino had a ban, a cover ban on Reggie Miller, an unofficial cover ban. Basically said no covers for Reggie Miller. I don't care if he's the best player in the world. I don't care if Joe Wolfon is the biggest Indiana Pacers fan. And then basically what happened was they would put prom photos. They would dig up these photos, like basically put Reggie on the Summer Jam screen. Like they would find old prom photos of him and his sister Cheryl and would put it in the magazine. And David Stern at one point called Tony and was like, can you please chill out? Because Reggie's actually really pissed about this and all this. And then finally, I believe this is issue 39. But finally, they put Reggie 
on the cover because they just had no choice. Like the Pacers were too good. They had to honor Reggie. And if anybody has that issue, Slam used to put inside jokes on like the actual spine of the magazine. And if you go to the spine, it says hell freezes over. And that was Tony's way of saying like, I can't believe we finally put Reggie on the cover. So I actually love hearing those stories because a lot of the older guys just didn't get Slam. Like Patrick Ewing never fucked with Slam. Charles Barkley. Like a lot of those guys, by the time Slam came out, like they had grown up in the SI era and they just didn't mess with it. So, so for me, it was, it was just stories like that. And, and, you know, Cash, you talk about me being a fan, you know, before being part of the media, you're exactly right. And being able to just hear the context of all these things that I read and saw growing up, like honestly, personally for me, that was one of the, that was honestly the, the most thrilling and personally satisfying part of working on this book. All right, I only have one final question before we go. Uh, what's the deal with Pearl Jam almost naming themselves after Mookie Blaylock? I'd never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, so this was a tip that that uh, Slam had covered in their first magazine. I think they were just huge basketball fans. They were just huge basketball heads, and they were looking for the most like cult figure at the time in terms of point guards. Because if you look at... 90s point guards it was obviously a golden era right like gary payton uh john stockton you know unfortunate what's happened to him um yeah. and you know other other Mookie other Blaylock too oh yeah but like um but yeah i think that was just a very random thing uh but but yeah that that's something that i, I need uh someone else to write a book on and before i go man i just want to as long as i have the opportunity just want to shout out you guys once again say that you guys are running the best NBA pod and you know the score is doing great I just want to give a shout out to some of my folks at the score you know Rory Ash Toby Nav Sally Brendan managing the drone so just 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 want to show some love I really appreciate having this hour to talk about cover story uh available at all public libraries Brandon Jordan and specifically his drone getting the shout out is just peak peak Alex uh, Brandon will appreciate that as will all of our score people we we appreciate you spreading the good word of pound the rock and appreciate the time we have with you before we let you go I do want to ask you because you had even uh, kind of mentioned it at one point when you were joking about how cover story ended up just being a book for your media friends and that you you owe your publisher one you'll get them on the next one you have a next one already planned I believe so you want to let us know what that is and, and what you're working on and also where people can find your work because you're not just writing bestsellers. I'm actually pretty deep into working on my next book right now with Triumph Books as well. It's uh, tentatively titled Prehistoric and it's going to be a deep dive into the Raptors first season and how the Raptors came to Toronto. So I've actually interviewed about eight players from that first year roster. I've talked to head coach Brendan Malone um, have interviews scheduled with Isaiah Thomas, talked to John Petov Jr., and talked to a lot of people in the organization and also people in the Toronto community. So I'm about 100 interviews wow. deep, actually. Um, and, you know, this book is something, again, that is very near and dear to me. You know, I grew up in Hong Kong. I immigrated here to Toronto in 1992. And when the Raptors came in 1995, I still remember going to Sears and begging my mom to buy me the merchandise or watching the games on the new VR and obviously watching them beat the Bulls um, when they were going for 72 wins. And I've always wanted to write the story, not just about the Raptors and how this whole organization came together, the story of these players, but also just about the impact of a basketball team on this community. 
So I've reached out to different communities, whether it's the Chinese community, Filipino community, Jamaican community, Italian community, just kind of profiling people there too and telling their stories and how they cross intersect with a professional basketball team coming. So um, my publisher is not going to like me saying this, but I personally give cover story like an eight out of 10. (laughs) Prehistoric, this one I'm working on right now, I feel like having the experience of having worked on cover story I feel like this one's gonna this one's gonna be a real banger. So uh, well, I'm excited about twenty twenty three is the tentative date. Uh, yeah, li- listen, man. If uh, if you ever need any insight into the impact the team had on the Jewish community, you've got my number. Standing by. I got, I got your number, man. We'll watch some tape and break down the uh, Damon Stoudemire, Oliver Miller pick and roll. Uh, <laughs> Did you talk to Vincenzo Esposito? I have his number. It's a really oh. long. It's a really long number, so it's definitely an Italian number. Right. So I, you know, no jokes. I was actually going to hit you up, Cash, at some point to to see if you could make that call for me. Oh, we'll, we'll go to we'll go to lunch. I'll get a lunch out of it with Vincenzo. But uh, yeah, you know, um, in terms of my work, um, again, I appreciate you guys letting me have this platform. You know, I Monday to Friday now at Sportsnet, I co-host and produce the Raptor Show with Will Liu. So we're live on air two to three p.m every day on fan 590 and you can subscribe to the raptor show on all podcast platforms make sure you check that out we've had joseph cacharo and joe wolf on as guests and they are on the recurring guest list so it's a, a lot of cool basketball talk um kind of you know in a way trying to replicate some of that pound the rock vibe too kind of just two guys kind of shooting the shit about things that they're passionate about and you know, if you if you want to find me on Twitter, it's Stephen underscore LeBron. IG is Stephen LeBron no underscore. Also, shout out to your reference to the new VR because there there are some classic early Pro franchise months. commercials <laughs> that oh, aired yeah. on the new VR. One of which I'll ask you guys about off the air because I don't want to get into trouble for what. Uh... <laughs> anyway, this has been a great hour of Pound the Rock. We are very appreciative of Alex Wong. We love Cover Story. We hope you uh, enjoyed listening to this hour, but also that if you haven't got Cover Story already, you go out and pick up your copy in stores. Alex, I'm assuming they can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Is there Are there exclusive rights here only in certain stores or what's going on? No, no. All bookstores, uh, you know, online and obviously retail spaces. I will say... Uh, I'm sure that people, some people might be aware there's just global supply chain issues happening right now because of the pandemic that's really delayed a lot of stuff. So the book is sometimes you might, if you go on certain book sites, they might be sold out for a particular week because the stock is just backed up because people are just buzzing about cover story that they're flying off the shelves. So if those, if those things happen, just, you know, please uh, be patient. But I honestly do think like, Listen, man, you guys know I'm not big on just like selling myself. You know, the the, the work speaks for itself, but I, I do think it's a cool it's a cool basketball book. And I think it makes actually for a really good gift for those who celebrate Christmas. All I'm hearing is that cover story has caused the global supply chain issues. There's just too much demand. It, that, that is a rumor I have spread to my publisher. Um, they have not replied to that email. Yeah. All I'm hearing is that it sounds like Baby Winona Wolfon's first ever Christmas gift is going to be a copy of Cover Story. Please, yep. please. Let me let me get Winona like, you know, a, a baby TJ Warren jersey or <laughs> something. Like something. I know you retired. I know an earlier episode of Pound the Rock because I'm such an avid listener. You 
publicly, you know, disassociated yourself from your Indiana Pacers fandom. I was really sad to hear that, Wolfon. Hopefully you have found a new team to root for. Yeah, I'm still working on the uh, on the second the second fan team. Any um, prospects? Like, do you have like a top three list? Man, like early in the season, I was really vibing with the Wolves, but it's um, the, the vibes have taken a bit of a hit since the first couple of weeks, and um, so I don't know if I'm going to stick with that, but I might because you know downtrodden franchises have always interested me, so uh, I'm not necessarily going to be dissuaded by the fact that they continue to circle the drain uh, in what once appeared to be a promising season. I mean, I like, I feel, I feel like most basketball fans are, are, are like pretty enamored with Anthony Edwards. So I'm not unique in that regard, but I just think that's going to be a fun player to root for, for a really long time. And I was, I was thinking about him a lot actually when I was reading the section on slam in the book, because I feel like that's the kind of player who, when slam was sort of first coming up, like that is the exact type of player who would have been on a slam cover who, where, like Sports Illustrated would never put Anthony Edwards on the cover, but I, I think like what was great about Slam and just like sort of revisiting their early years was they it, it was just all about enthusiasm for the game of basketball and for the players that populated the league as opposed to just like the absolute super duper stars or the winningest teams. It was about like finding unique personalities and unique game styles um, that were all over the place, but like nobody else was really writing about. And I feel like. Anthony Edwards to me is like a perfect encapsulation of that in this era. So maybe it's the wolves for me is my, is my, my long answer to that question. Well, I think, I think you should actually, speaking of downtrodden, I think you should uh, become a new Orleans Pelicans fan. Um, <sighs> new Orleans Pelicans hot take. There's not even a hot take. They're the new Sacramento Kings, baby. Wow. The difference is uh, I don't think any former player turned mayor is stepping up to save the Pelicans. Anyway, that about does it for this week's episode of the pod. Thanks again to Alex Wong. Before we leave you for the week though, uh, Wolfon and I did want to get to this week's fan shout out of the week. And this one was a really fun one. So uh, Abhinav, I believe his last name was Tiramula, if I remember the pronunciation correctly, but out in Edmonton, who we have shouted out before for being a loyal listener of the show, but he hit me up. Uh, via Twitter DMs a couple weeks back to ask for another shout out, but not just for him. It's actually for uh, him and some of his friends. So this is a four person shout out and it's for Abhinav, Anup, Emily, and Melissa out in Edmonton. The story is that Abhi and uh, Anup, I hope again, I hope I'm saying the names correctly. Abhi and Anup went to a bar to watch some ball. This is out again in Edmonton, Canada and uh, watch some heat Mavs, which to be honest, I'm just happy to hear in Edmonton, you were able to watch a heat Mavs game at a bar that, that warms the cockles of my heart. But Abhi and his friend were trashing Jason Kidd while talking about the Mavs offense and some of the stuff that they had heard on Pound the Rock and, and, and what we were talking about earlier this season with uh, the burden on Luka Doncic's shoulders and he said that a couple of people, this was Emily and Melissa close by, uh, heard them, joined the conversation, were also big ball fans. They got into talking about like just various basketball topics. And then Abby's friend mentioned listening to Pound the Rock. And one of Emily and Melissa ended up saying that they are also Pound the Rock listeners. They ended up having a conversation about Pound the Rock. And I don't remember if it was uh, Emily or Melissa in Abby's story, but one of them even specifically shouted out that she enjoyed our episode when we uh, ripped the anti-vax clowns. 
in the NBA. So shout out Abby for spreading the good word of Pound the Rock, but also shout out Anup, Melissa, and Emily out in Edmonton. I think this is our first group fan shout out of the week. And the, the story was fun. Usual call out to all of our listeners. If you're a fan of Pound the Rock, if you hate Pound the Rock and yet are making it through episodes for some reason, hit us up on social media at Joseph Kishar on Twitter, at Joey W on Twitter, Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram, joseph.kasharo at the score.com or joe.wolfon at the score.com via email. And let us know how long you've been listening to the show, where you're listening from, who you've met at a bar because you're talking about Pound the Rock. Let us know all that good stuff. And I promise you, we will get you and your group a shout out on a future episode of Pound the Rock. Until that future episode when Wolfon and I will be back talking and debating and bantering about the latest NBA topics for Joe Wolfon. For Alex Wong, I'm Joseph Cuchero. Pound the Rock.